Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. So let me ask maybe a stupid question, but where do viruses come from? How do they get created? Haha. Um, viruses are a part of nature that were meant to actually speed up and help with evolution. They transfer DNA from creature, from species to species. And they're actually part of us and as have enabled the, the, you know, the evolution tree to happen. You have more viral DNA and bacterial DNA in you as a human than you do human DNA. And they control these bacteria and these viruses, how you metabolize food, many aspects around you. The problem is some of them are what we call pathogenic, and they can cause problems, particularly newer ones like this. In Korea, if you're tested, all of your neighbors get a text, hey, David in apartment 3B has corona. So they know to avoid me, um, and they know who's infected, and they actually trace where I went, and anybody I talked to on my phone, they went back a week before, who did David just meet? Let me test them and see if they're positive or not. They actually say, screw privacy, let's look at all of that data. Wouldn't it be amazing to know who's following the rules and not? And then the ones who aren't, we have to figure out different rules to enact because we all have to do it. We all have to think as one to get rid of this. When you look at countries like Germany that have had uniform practices across it, South Korea, China, Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, they clamped down as an entire country um, with uniform practices. And people listened and they understood. Then you had a, a, a you know, quick silencing of the virus. I hope we're getting there in this country. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Dr. David Agus is a professor at the University of Southern California School of Medicine and the founding director of USC's Institute of Transformative Medicine. He is widely regarded as one of the world's leading physicians 
and he is a CBS News medical contributor. Dr. Agus just joined us for a detailed conversation on the coronavirus. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Dr. Agus, thank you for taking the time to join us to talk about uh, this very important issue. Oh, it's my privilege to be here. So let's jump right in, and I'm hoping that we can walk through the issues related to coronavirus in a kind of step-by-step and hopefully logical way that will depend a lot on my questions. But uh, maybe the place to start is kind of at the tactical level with the virus itself. So what is a coronavirus? Why is this one called novel? And what is our best understanding of how it originated? In the 1960s, um, people would be getting colds and a very clever scientist put it under the microscope and they visualized a virus. And this particular virus had little projections out of it and it looked like a crown. So hence the name coronavirus. And so about a third of common colds are coronavirus. And, you know, viruses, when they come out, a new virus, say it goes from an animal to a human, um, over time they get weaker. Because if they were really strong and they knocked people off, they couldn't spread anymore. So mm. viruses over time get weaker. So the common colds that we have now were potent and actually kill people early and then have gotten weaker. Sometime in probably we know now uh, mid-2019, um, a new virus went from bat, which is about a quarter of the mammals on earth are bats. And they have very large numbers of bats and rodents, or the largest uh, harbinger of viruses. This virus changed and went from a bat to be able to grow in a human. Realize over 5 million years, our human genome evolved 1%. This genome of a virus can evolve 1% in a day. So it changes all the time. So it jumped from bat to human and was able to spread. And what was, and so we called it, uh, 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 you know, COVID-19, 19 means 2019. And so it was a coronavirus, coronavirus disease, COVID-19, and that's why it was called this. So it was a new virus that we hadn't seen before in humans. An amazing paper came out in the, one of the medical journals last week where they actually looked at all the DNA sequencers and the top DNA people in the world looked at it. And the amazing, because there was all these rumors that it came from a lab in China and all of that. Right. So the conclusion of the paper was, how this virus binds to a human cell is so remarkable and amazing that humans don't have the computing power to do it or the brains to do it. Only nature could do it. It is the wildest conclusion of a paper I've ever seen in my life. So there's no reason to doubt that it originated, spread through a natural mechanism. You know, there's these stories about out there about bioweapons. So there's, there's no doubt in your mind about that. After this paper came out in the medical journal Nature, it is definitive that this was not engineered by humans. And is this virus related in any way to the SARS virus from the early 2000s? Yeah, all these viruses are, are similar in many respects, and they're a similar family. Um, and they all just behave differently. And whenever we see a new virus, you know, it ha we can't tell you its natural course. When we say, well, will this go away in the summer or not? We don't know. If I say, if you, have, uh, if you got the virus, can you get it again in a year? The answer is, I don't know, because we haven't studied it for a year. So this is new, and that's what's kind of daunting to scientists, to doctors, to patients, to everybody, is when you don't know what to expect, we all just get very stressed. Yeah. Um, we want to understand more than we do. So what is it about this virus that makes it so dangerous? You know, the, uh, uh, what we know about this virus is the day you have symptoms, the first symptoms, 
um, your virus level is the highest. Normally, when you get the, a virus, a cold or, or a flu, it, you have a low level of virus and the symptoms are there and the virus slowly builds up. But because it's the highest the day you get symptoms, it means three, four days before you had symptoms, when you were asymptomatic, you can spread the virus. And about 20% of people never get any symptoms at all and they have a period where they can spread the virus. So this stealth spread, if you will, is what makes this virus so hard to tackle. When Ebola came out, you know, you knew you were sick, so we quarantined you, and we're very easy to block it off. And mm. a certain number of people die, which is still tragic, but it's a small number. Here, because people don't know they have it, and they end up going to a church service, or they get in a, 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 a gondola in Aspen and they you know, breathe and everyone in the gondola is infected. Or they go to a beach in Florida and they don't know they're having, they're asymptomatic. They don't mean to harm people, but they did because it spreads and spreads. And then what about the lethality of it? So this is the tricky part. And this is the part that keeps me up at night is that 98% of people have mild symptoms, maybe a little bit you know, moderate, but nothing more than that. 2% of people get very severe symptoms and end up hospitalized, some of them on a ven ventilator, and some of them will die. The problem is I can't tell you which 2%. So everybody thinks they're in that 2%. They're worried about it. We all, and if we had the clue of who was the 2%, I could treat them aggressively up front. I could try to prevent in those people. I would have some knowledge instead of we have to clamp down the whole country. So I don't know who that 10% is. Just last week, I saw a couple, 50 years old, she was running, you know, jogging five miles a day. He was overweight and had medical issues. She ended up on a ventilator. He didn't, and he was fine. Why did that happen? By not knowing that, that's one of the biggest clues that we're missing. So, so there's this idea out there, right, that the elderly are more at risk of dying and people with pre-existing conditions are more at risk of dying. Are you saying that we're still trying to understand that? Well, they are at much, much higher risk of dying. So what I was talking about is the 2% will get severe disease and be hospitalized or be sick. Many of those are 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds, but they're the ones who get better. The 70, 80s and 90 year olds generally don't get better, unfortunately. And so when so they get is, hospitalized, there's a much higher mortality rate. I see. So, so, so what happen, actually happens to your body when this, when this virus infects it? So this virus- happens to you? enters through a receptor in the lung, um, and it's called ACE2. And then your body starts to make an immune response against the virus. And so when people start to get difficulty breathing, it's not the virus causing any problem anymore. It's your immune response to the problem. And the immune response says, hey, I see a virus there. Let me make the blood vessels leaky so more immune cells can get in and attack it. When the blood vessels get leaky in the lung, do you know how when you, you fall and you, get a, uh, you skin your elbow, it gets swollen? That's mm -hmm. getting leaky, so immune cells can come in and clear away all the gunk and the bacteria and things. But when it gets leaky in the lung, that fluid makes it so oxygen can't go into the arteries and you can't breathe. And then when th there's fluid there and you can't breathe, you know we have to use pressure. That's what a ventilator does. It puts pressure in to be able to still deliver oxygen to the blood vessels. So it's the immune response causing the problem, not the virus at the end stages. So that's why many of the treatments that we're doing now were meant for autoimmune arthritis or lupus or other diseases, where it's actually blocking immune responses to help patients. So you mentioned this briefly earlier, doctor, but latest estimates of time from, from time of infection to symptoms. Two to nine days. And during that entire time, can you infect others or just a period of that time? 
The amazing thing in today's world where we can send a, a man to the moon 50 years ago, although we haven't done it in a while, um, I still can't tell you if you're infectious or not. The way we know if you're infectious is by anecdotes, by stories. I was exposed to the virus and then two days later, I talked to Jane and Jane got the virus. Therefore, I was infectious at day two. And so what we think, and I, again, I have to emphasize that word think because there's no, there's no assay for are you infectious, is that you're infectious two to three days, maybe four before you're symptomatic. Um, so if you have a very high viral load, what we think is you were exposed to a lot of virus, someone coughed a big amount, you breathe in a lot of virus, you're going to be symptomatic pretty quickly. If mm -hmm. you have a tiny bit, just a couple droplets, maybe it'll take you nine, 10 days to become symptomatic and you'll be, uh, uh, be infectious two or three days before that. And you mentioned this earlier too, but we hear about this, this big group of folks who are asymptomatic. What does that mean? Why don't they get sick? And are they still able to infect others? That's the million dollar question is that there's no question they can affect others, that they are predominantly of the younger generations. Um, what we don't know is that if their immunity, they were able to fight off the virus, does that mean that they're, they have good immunity and they won't get it again in a year, two years, or three years? Will that immunity last? Will it not last? We don't know any of those. Um, and again, we don't even know how many of those people there are. Many of them didn't have any symptoms. They were never tested. Many of them had mild symptoms. They go, oh, it's just a cold. It's not worth going in and standing in line and getting a test. Um, and so until we have what we call the, uh, 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 the post-exposure test, which is a blood test that can look if you have immunity or not, um, we're not going to know the true penetrance. We're not going to know the denominator, how many people have it in the country and have been exposed and how many asymptomatics there are. The figure of 21% asymptomatic came from China. And we're not sure how accurate that data is, if it underestimates uh, dramatically the, un, uh, the, the exposure. We don't know. You know, listen, we all had little periods over the last couple of weeks. We can envision a couple of symptoms. I feel a little bit tired and achy. Maybe I have it and it went away the next day. I just don't know. So that test is going to be critical. Right now, it's a blood test where I have to stick a needle in, draw a tube of blood and do that test. Pretty soon it'll be a finger prick and the hope is it'll be a finger prick at home where you put it on a piece of paper, you mail that paper in and I can give you the result. Cause I don't want people going to a doctor's office right now and getting that test. Cause right. again, it could be a conduit for spread if you will, but it's an easy test. It's called an so, ELISA, cheap and easy. So what about folks who have gotten sick, perhaps very sick and they've gotten better? Can they get infected again? Do we know that? We don't know. Um, we don't know. And so that's only going to tell by time. Is that, you know, because there are two ways, right, that you can get infected again. One is your immunity wears off. And the second is the virus changes. So your immunity uh, uh, was to a, one virus. The virus is a little bit different. So that immunity won't carry older to the new virus. And so there are certain proteins on the outside in the luggage, if you will, the virus. Remember, this virus is not alive. It's basically a package with instructions inside, which is RNA. And so your immunity is against the package. Well, if it's to part of the package that can change that the virus doesn't really need, it may not hold over till a year from now when the virus changes. If it's just something that's integral to the virus, it'll carry on. So let me ask a, maybe a stupid question, but where do viruses come from? How do they get created? Haha. <laughs> um, viruses are a part of nature that were meant to actually speed up and help with evolution. They transfer DNA from creature, from species to species. And they're actually part of us and has enabled the, the, you know, the evolution tree to happen. And so viruses are common. 
Um, if we look at our genome, there are gobs of viruses in there. You know, thousands and thousands of viruses are part of us. And it's part of our, what we call microbiome or bacteria and viruses. You have more viral DNA and bacterial DNA in you as a human than you do human DNA. And they control these bacteria and these viruses, how you metabolize food, many aspects around you. The problem is some of them are what we call pathogenic and they can cause problems, particularly newer ones like this. I see. And they're always changing. And so they, they can change into something that becomes pathogenic when it didn't start that way. Josh Letterberg, a Nobel laureate, one of the greatest scientists in our history, said the only thing that will threaten humans' dominance on Earth is the virus. It is our wits versus their genome. And it was such a powerful two sentences. And he said this 30 plus years ago that nobody really paid attention, but it really was prescient at the time. And I want to come back to something you said earlier, because I hear people say this all the time. You know, people will look at a map of where the outbreaks are in the world, and they say they see seasonality, right? Because there's all these cases in the Northern Hemisphere and fewer in the Southern Hemisphere. And they say, ah, seasonality. But your point earlier is we don't know that. Is that correct? No question about it. You know, the reason many virus, you know, it's kind of this misnomer out there. Well, in heat, the virus goes away. You know, when it becomes summer, kids are no longer in school, so they're not confined in one area. We're outside. We're not indoors where we can spread things. So our behavior changes in the summer. So in areas of the country right now where it's hot, we still have the same behavior as winter behavior. We're still in schools and others, so the virus spread. So I think it's more our behavior changes. And, you know, UV sunlight, as I look outside, it's sunny in Los Angeles now, UV sunlight degrades the virus. So you are a lot safer outdoors than obviously in the indoors. In the indoors where lots of people, that's what happened. In the cold, you know, the blood vessels constrict, you get a little bit of fluid coming out your nose, that's a conduit, you touch it, that's a conduit for spreading a virus. You don't have that in the summer. So it's not that the virus changes as much as we change. I see. And I, I heard somewhere that, there, that there's a vitamin D issue involved. So when we get more sunlight, we get higher levels of vitamin D and that might no. play a role here. Is that right? No? No, it's not accurate. Um, okay. Okay. You know, we, yeah. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are trying to find simple kind of reductionist answers to this. Take this or do this, but no, there's no correlation between immunity and vitamin D, which people get upset when I say but there's ne there have been many large studies done with supplementing vitamin D from various means to try to help with immunity and not, none of them have ever worked. There's no correlation. Okay, excellent. I will stop taking my vitamin D pill. I'm um, saving you so money. Let's, <laughs> so let's go to the bigger picture here. So what does coronavirus look like in context, right? How does it at this stage compare to the average seasonal flu? to the 1918 or 1957 flu pandemics or the 2009 swine flu outbreak. Put this in context for us. You know, 1918 was an interesting one on the Spanish flu, which by the way, started in Kansas and not Spain, right? It was World War I. And so the media weren't allowed to talk about anything that would show weakness in the country. So we weren't allowed to talk about it. Um, and that spread like wildfire. The way we stopped it is exactly how we're doing it now is we said you cannot congregate more than groups of three, close all churches, close all schools, close all sporting events. And we really did stay at home for a year and we were able to stop it. Um, and so that was before air travel. The problem now, right, is that things happen literally overnight because of airplanes. And so in 1918, it circled the globe three times as it killed, it's decimated the number of people it did. And we all see the models out now, 40% of the globe, millions of people dying. All of those models said what happened over three years, it wasn't all at once, 
and all of the models meant with no social distancing, with no medications that work, with no chance of a vaccine, with no growth in medical infrastructure, all of which are going to prove counter. So we're not going to hit what all the models say because our medical infrastructure is responding. Every city is looking at what New York City did right and wrong, and we're changing and we're adapting there. The drugs are starting to show potential benefit, and it's very encouraging. We have several vaccine, vaccine candidates already into patients. Um, we are social distancing, and it is working in the cities that are doing it well. So all that is great. But then, you know, you look at just the modern world. There's an amazing video just last week of uh, one county in Florida closed their beaches, another county didn't. And what you see is just people, you know, up to one border where the county stopped and it was empty. Yet on the other side of that county line, lots of people on the beach. And the problem is they actually followed the cell phone of people on a beach and see where they went and they all got on a plane and were all across the country. So we can spread things easily through air transportation. So even if your state is perfect, all you need is somebody from the state next door where they're still allowed to go to religious services and it could spread virus back to your state and you're going to ruin all of the social distancing your state did. So this is a new era where we have to work as a community and think together as one. And that's difficult, but critically important. You know, we have a thing of states' rights where health is dictated by the states in our country, not the federal government. So right. it's still today, governors send an email. They're asked to every week, how many tests did you do? What were the results? The federal government doesn't have the right of taking that data. The states have to give it to the government in an Excel spreadsheet. That's crazy to me. We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Dr. Agus. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So, so doctor, as of today, and we're taping this on a, a, a Friday before the Wednesday that we're going to release it, today we have 240,000 confirmed cases. But as you said earlier, there's probably you know, more people out there who are infected because to have a confirmed case, you have to have a, a positive test, right? So do you have a sense of how many more people may be infected than the 240,000 that have been confirmed? It's a critical question. And because testing has been so limited in the affected areas of our country, it's been hard to answer. You know, the, the government was right when they say there are plenty of tests because there are. The problem is we don't have the infrastructure to run those tests. So it's not the number of tests now where it was initially the limiting factor. It's the fact that we only have a certain number of PCR machines. What the test does, it looks at 100 letters of the virus's 30,000 letter code. And you have to amplify that through a technology and you need certain people to run it who are good at running it, who know how to run it. You need these machines that are rather expensive to do it. And so we don't have that infrastructure. And so even today in California, there's still a five to six day delay until you get your test results back because there's a backlog. And most people are disincentivized from getting a test. You know, if, if you have mild symptoms and I say get a test, you're going to really go and stand in an emergency room where, you know, if you weren't positive when you're in, you're positive when you come out. Um, you know, this idea of the drive-by drive-through testing, things are great, but there are only a few of them in the country. Um, some of them are operating well. Others have crazy long lines. 
our infrastructure just hasn't built. So I can't answer that question. My gut is the number is estimated by underestimated the 240,000 by anywhere from, you know, four to tenfold underestimated. And it's, it's really important to know that number, right? Um, because oh, you yeah. need that number to understand the mortality at the end of the day. So as we get the, the, the post-exposure test, we can go into a city and say, hey, let me just test a thousand people and have that be representative and say what percent of them were exposed and I can extrapolate and models can give you real numbers. So my gut is over the next several weeks, we're going to start to have those numbers as those tests get more common. Let me ask you a question about testing that I have not heard before. So I'm an economist by training. And so I spent a lot of time in college and graduate school taking statistics courses. Do we know the false positive and false negative rates on the testing that we're doing now? False positive with this test should be near zero. Um, It's very hard to get a false positive when you're looking for an RNA, um, so a PCR. The false negative uh, results are anywhere up to, I would say, 20 to 30% potentially. Um, If you have less symptoms, your false negative rate is higher. If you have more symptoms, your false negative rate is lower. But again, those are estimates. It's very hard to know what is, you know, true. Uh, you know, in order to get false negative and false positive, you need a, a what is the truth. And so the problem is we don't have a denominator of truth yet to know to go back. So it's all estimates. You know, in order to know, I, I need to know, yes, they really did have it and you said no. Well, I have that in some cases, but most cases I don't have the follow-up to know what real ground truth was. So my gut is it'll be 20 to 30% false negative. But again, it's just a gut right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so the public health protocols. Do we have in your mind any options beyond stay at home, social distancing? Is that our only option at the moment or are there others? No, I mean, I mean you had the mayors of New York City and Los Angeles announce and I think the White House may announce today is that we want you to wear masks. This is a predominantly droplet spread disease. You know, when you stand in front of a mirror and breathe, that fog is droplets. So our breathing creates droplets, whether you're infected, I mean, whether you're symptomatic or not, you create droplets. When you wear a bandana, so not a, we don't want you to wear N95 masks because they're a limited supply, but when you wear a homemade mask, you basically block those droplets. You wear a bandana and breathe on a mirror, you're not going to see the fog. And so if we all wore bandanas when we go out, we would stop, you know, because we need to go out and not to go shopping and other things, we would stop spread of the virus, period, also. And it wouldn't be 100%, but it would add more to it. The more we can get... So that, you know, uh, the number of people, the person affected it, whenever one person is affected, if infects more than one other person, the virus will continue to grow. If it's less than one, that number is low, then the virus won't grow and will slowly peter away. We have to stop it like that. So our behavior change has to do more than just staying inside. When we have to go out and anybody who's out, whether you're working as cash register or an EMT, you need to wear something so you can't spread if you're asymptomatic. And, and if we had, if we had massive testing, would that give us more options or would the public health protocol be exactly the same? You know, we have this thing that we're very proud of in the United States called privacy rules. In Korea, if you're tested, all of your neighbors get a text, Hey, David in apartment 3B has Corona. So they know to avoid me. um, And they know who's infected and they actually trace where I went and anybody I talked to on my phone, they went back the week before. Who did David just meet? Let me test them and see if they're positive or not. They actually say, screw privacy. Let's look at all of that data. Google announced today that they have the data from Google Maps of 
who's effectively doing social distancing out what city? And they're giving it to the cities. They're not releasing it public, which I think they should. But wouldn't it be amazing to know who's following the rules and not? And then the ones who aren't, we have to figure out different rules to enact because we all have to do it. We all have to think as one to get rid of this. This is an amazing part of humanity where you have to go back to being a community. It's a new change in our mentality and our behavior that we really haven't thought about for decades. Well, I'm wondering... Uh... You know, if this gets severe enough that if Americans will would would welcome the kind of things they're doing in South Korea and Singapore and elsewhere, I hope so. But I mean, what it's going to mean is we have to treat people differently, which again we don't respond well to. If you have no immunity and you're seventy, I'm going to say you have to stay home um, and you can't go out. If you're a twenty year old and again you have no immunity, I'm going to say you can't go out, but the other twenty year old can. And people are going to say, no way, I have my rights. I want to do this. I don't want people to know I had the virus uh, or I could have spread it or I spread it to somebody else. Uh, it's my right to keep my healthcare information private. I don't want you to mine my healthcare data to figure out who gets sick and who doesn't. This is my data. You know, if I mm -hmm. ask you to get a mortgage, you give me every financial record you have and you don't think twice. If I say, let me use your healthcare data to better treating humanity and the rest of the world, you say, no way, it's my healthcare data. Yeah. So how significant do you think the ancillary health effects of staying at home are, of loneliness and depression, et cetera? Are you seeing that? Yeah. You know, my hope is, is that we're, we're all learning ways to overcome it and we're working as a community. So we're FaceTiming or video chatting with our parents, with our grandparents, with friends. We're developing a community. Listen, I've heard from people I haven't heard from in decades and they're all checking in. How are you? And texting me. And I love that part of it. But we all have to be cognizant of the people who don't have support systems. You know, if uh, I'm going to get food and my neighbor's 80, I, you know, I text her or call her and say, hey, listen, I can order food for you and get food for you also. You know, it's a time to step up and help each other. We can all be part of the solution. Technology will enable all of us to be part of the solution, not the problem. And I think we have to step up, right, is that, you know, one of the biggest tendencies to staying at home is just eating, right? Food is always available. We have this thing called a kitchen cabinet. You know, you want to just have three meals a day with nothing in between. If you graze during the day, your stress hormones actually stay up and your immunity goes down. You have to walk. Your lymphatics that control your immune system have no muscle in their walls. So it's the rhythmic contraction of the muscles in your legs when you walk that actually make your body work. So walk around, whether it be your apartment or your house. If you can, find a time to get outside and just... Take a small walk, whether it be a backyard or just around the block, you know, when there aren't a lot of people and you can social distance, it's critical that we think of our health also. Okay. So the snacks go away with the vitamin D tablets. That's excellent. All um, right. So, so, so walk Any us through. Any other issues of yourself you want to talk about? <laughs> um, so walk us through the testing issue, right? Can you kind of summarize why were we in such a bad place at the beginning and, and, and where are we now and are we on the road to where we need to be, et cetera? Can you kind of put that in context? You know, testing was, um, you know, the World Health Organization developed a test and was giving out to member countries. The United States, in partly its hubris, but partly it was justified, we have pretty good science compared to most countries, said we're going to develop our own test and we're going to do it well. The initial approaches that testing were successful, but the problem is the controls. That is, knowing whether the test worked or not didn't work for a bunch of batches tested. So all of a sudden, the initial batches of tests that went out in the country um, were faulty and people weren't using them. And so we didn't have enough tests to go around. There was a panic. 
large amount of testing came out, the government started to say, hey, private industry get involved. Private industry gets involved, they were pretty freaking good. I mean, in today's world, I mean, and I, I know I'm gonna offend people by saying this, but if you're the best and the brightest, you go to work for a tech company. You don't go to work for the federal government in a testing lab. And mm. I wish it weren't so, because those are heroes in those testing labs. And yeah. so once you get private industry that can put a thousand people on a problem, basically turn on a dime and attack something, all of a sudden we had large numbers of tests and they were out there. We still don't have the infrastructure to run those tests. And realize what the test is, is it the virus has instructions called RNA inside. And this amplifies a hundred letters of that RNA that are specific and unique to this COVID-19. And it amplifies it. And then you see, are those hundred letters that represent two of the genes of the virus, are, and there are 30,000 letters in that virus, are those two genes there or not? And if they're there, both of them, you have the virus. If they're not there, it doesn't mean you don't have the virus. So a positive is a positive, but a negative means maybe we just missed how we tested or where we tested it. So it doesn't mean you're totally negative. That's where the false negatives come in. Um, but a positive is a positive. So you mentioned the intrusiveness of the South Korea's approach. When you look broadly at the countries that have handled the crisis well and those who have not handled it so well, what are the what are the main differences that you see? The, the wildest anecdote I see is that when they Northern Italy had a big outbreak and we saw it right after Fashion Week, big, big number of cases surged in Northern Italy. So what they did was they closed all of Northern Italy, just like we did in many of our states, 40 of our states. But they left Southern Italy open. So what happened is everybody from Northern Italy got on their car or got on a train and went to Southern Italy where you can go shopping and go to restaurants. And basically policy caused spread of the virus. Amazing, mm -hmm. policy caused spread of the virus. And so mm -hmm. unless you have uniform policy across the country, what you see is that. So the countries that are saying, we have to shut down our entire country and our borders are having very good results and are able to you know, get rid of the virus with time. The biggest problem is that there's a nine to 10 day, I mean, about a nine to 10 day incubation period on average. There is about a two week period of having the virus. So when you make an intervention, you don't see the results to two, three weeks down the road. And that's difficult and that's frustrating, right? I'm losing my business, I'm staying at home, yet the number of cases are still going up. It's very hard with that delay. Countries that have leadership that is explaining that and showing why that behavior change matters and really every day giving out updates on that, they're having pretty impressive results. Countries that are just all over the place, one day has a scare tactic, one day doesn't, one day they're not and has disparate results by states, which is what we're doing, the results aren't as good. So when you look at countries like Germany that have had uniform practices across it, South Korea, China, Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, they clamp down as an entire country um, with uniform practices and people listened and they understood and they were shamed or put, or there was actually penalties for people who violated. Um, then you had a, a, a you know, quick silencing of the virus. I hope we're getting there in this country. Do you think the general health of a country's population is playing a role here? I mean, when you look at Asia, you don't see a lot of obese people, right? But then you look at some countries in the West and it's a different picture. Does that, does that matter? We think it does. Um, certainly the trends in the United States is we're seeing more people who are very symptomatic in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And we think, it's a hypothesis purely, is that it's because we are more obese and we do have more elevated blood pressure, which may increase the receptor for this virus called ACE2. Uh, it's a hypothesis. Certainly we as a country, 
you know, we are not as attuned to others about restrictions in eating and exercise. And obviously it's a wake up call for us. It matters, you know, over and over again, we're seeing policy changes in certain countries. You know, in certain countries, you're allowed to smoke, but if you get lung cancer, you have to pay a $60,000 surcharge because why should the non-smokers subsidize the smokers? In our country, we need to bring back responsibility for behavior, I think, and really educate people why behavior matters. Um, because obviously it can affect the entire country. Right. So we've heard Dr. Fauci say that the timing of the country's reopening is going to be dictated by the virus, not policy. How should we think about how quarantining and social distancing protocols can eventually be scaled back? What what would make sense? What would you have to see for you to feel comfortable in doing that? You know, it's very hard to look at incidents of the virus as number of cases because of we've alluded to before the testing. But number right. of hospitalizations is a pretty good metric, right? I mean, the hospitalizations themselves don't lie. And so you looking at the number of patients who are being hospitalized in a city can be powerful. And it may be that we restrict it in certain areas of the country and we restrict travel. If we're only seeing growth in California, well, basically we'll say, listen, the rest of the country can leave their home, but California, we're going to restrict and nobody can go or leave in California until the numbers come down. And people aren't going to be happy with that. But I think in a data-driven way to release parts of the country, not others, is probably what's going to happen. And so my hope is that's an incentive to leaders at the local and the state levels to really say, we want our state to be one of the ones that can actually go back to our business as usual and push in that regard, but it has to be data-driven. And I think the question now is, you know, what are the metrics that we have to follow on the local and the regional and the federal level to be able to do that? And there are lots of talk now about what they are, and we're developing these indices, if you will. And I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure you see a significant risk of relaxing those protocols too soon. No question about it. I mean, right, that's that's the risk. And you know, everybody says, well, are you going to think about the economy or are you going to think about health Whether or the virus? They're inexorably tied, right? If you uh, uh, release you know, the, the, the stay-at-home orders and enable the economy to grow, the virus grows and the economy falls again precipitously even more than it did before. So they are one and in the same. And anybody who tries to get reductionist say, well, it's got to be the virus versus the economy has no idea what they're talking about. And then final question, doctor, on on sort of the big picture here, the CDC numbers, their estimates on on the number of deaths, worst case, best case, most likely case, those make sense to you? It's hard to me what, what makes sense. I mean, the any model, you know, is done on behavior today. And what is if we extrapolate out from today till tomorrow to a month from now to three months from now, what could happen? The good is it was we're seeing behavior change daily. We're seeing more states with stay-at-home orders. We're seeing medications being used and showing efficacy. We're seeing you know, changes in medical infrastructure. We're seeing states learning what the good and bad of New York City's responses and changing. So what that means is every model will overestimate death rates because we're getting better at doing what we do. So any model you can see in a sense is worst case scenario because they're not modeling in the changes mm. that we're all doing. And mm. so my hope and prayers are those models are three, four times what is going to happen. And any death that was, you know, avoidable is obviously a travesty, or uh, you know, uh, we're upset about. Uh, but when you see numbers, well, a hundred to two hundred forty thousand, I think those are way gross estimates to what's actually going to happen. Overestimates. Maybe, sorry. Maybe we can take a brief couple of minutes here to talk about treatment and prevention. So, 
where are we on treating somebody who is sick and where are we on a vaccine and kind of walk us through those. So treating you know, falls into two buckets. Um, one is what we call post-exposure uh, prophylaxis. So say your spouse had pneumo- uh, influenza, I would give you 10 days of Tamiflu and you wouldn't get the flu. If you had sex with someone with HIV, I'd give you a couple of days of an antiretroviral and you wouldn't get HIV. We call that post-exposure prophylaxis. So the protocols now for frontline workers, for spouses of people who live with people who have the virus are now we're starting to use drugs in that setting to try to prevent people from getting the disease. Um, And then in terms of treating the disease, what we know initially from the China data and now in the US is the earlier you treat, the better. As we talked about before, is if we can block the virus before the immune system is crazily activated, we're going to do better. And there are drugs now that appear to be working. And I say that word appear with you know a quotation marks around it because there are randomized trial, for example, in China that shows that hydroxychloroquine, which is the drug that President Trump talked about about a week ago, um, although maybe longer than that, my time horizon is off in this world we live in today. Yeah, you know that he talked about showed that it was significantly better in time to fever resolution, x-rays, or people worsening of disease, it did better. This is a drug that's been around for 30 or 40 years. It costs about three, $4 without health insurance. So it's very inexpensive. And it was meant to treat lupus, or it's on the market for lupus, and to prevent malaria. And it actually works against this virus, it seems. Um, there's a drug called remdesivir, which is an experimental drug from a company called Gilead. There's an HIV cocktail called Coletra. There's some Japanese drugs that have been shown efficacy. And all of those are initially showing you know, potential benefits. The problem is randomized placebo-controlled trials. First of all, mm. nobody wants to be the placebo arm. Second of all, these trials take a long time to get full outcome. And we're not, we don't have time for that. So now doctors are starting to treat patients routinely with these drugs. And I'm into that. We're at war now. And so we call that yeah. off-label use or compassionate mm. use if it's drug for remdesivir that's not yet on the market. And we're doing that routinely. And the hope is now we're keeping the data and we're learning from every experience and getting better at it. And that's what's encouraging and exciting is that, you know, there's doctors talking now. The federal government, you'll see announced, you know, on Friday that they're, they're going to start to build this database. So every patient experience makes the next patient experience better. Um, but I'm enthused about that. In terms of vaccines, remember for three decades, we've been trying to make a vaccine for coronavirus, the common cold. We haven't succeeded. The hope now, this new emphasis, every major biotech and pharmaceutical company, all scientists are working on it, that we're putting the best and the brightest minds to develop a vaccine, that something will work. So the, the initial one, which was an, a, a, a vaccine where actually we didn't inject you know, parts of the virus, which is what we knew we to do, we actually injected the codes for parts of the virus called RNA into cells. That vaccine has already accrued patients and is ongoing now to see if it's starting to show immune responses. Johnson & Johnson is about to go into the clinic with a new vaccine, and there are about a half a dozen behind that. The problem is you first have to show that it can induce an immune response. Then you have to show mm. that it's safe and what is the right dose. Then you have to actually show it works. So it takes 12 to 18 months to develop a vaccine. It's not like a treatment where you know in a week whether it works or not. This is much longer time frame. So the hope is by next year, we can do that. And still, it will have dramatic benefit across the globe and all efforts should be pushed to do it, but it's not going to help us in the short run, the vaccine part. So, Doctor, you've been absolutely terrific with your time. I just want to ask you two more questions. Um, the first is, what makes you most worried here and what makes you most hopeful? 
You know, hopeful is, you know, the drugs are starting to show benefit. Our medical infrastructure really is coming up. And I think the behavior of people in our country, you know, it almost brings me to tears when I think about how radically all of us have changed our behavior to work together as one. It is beautiful. It is an amazing thing to see how behavior in our country, um, when we are put up to the challenge, we come through in the United States. And I'm proud of that. What scares me is what we don't know about this virus. What scares me is you know, that not everybody, not 100% are following the rules. Um, and so a couple of people, a couple of instances, you know, just yesterday, a couple of churches said, we are still going to have services and pull people together. Yeah. And just some of those instances can really hurt everybody in the community and hurt especially the elderly dramatically. And I don't want to see that happen. And we all have to step up and work together. And I don't think people are doing it to be bad people or bad intent. I think it's lack of knowledge. And so I think mm -hmm. we have to be better at the education side. We have to be better at the leadership side and step up. And the leaders are not just going to come from government. They're going to come from science. They're going to come from religion. They're going to come from companies. And it, you know, it just when I see CEOs coming up and saying to their employees, you know, and explaining it and doing, you know, bringing in scientists to talk to employees paying their employees when they're not working. I mean, it's a beautiful thing when our country comes together like that. And so my hope is we actually have positive come out of this in the long run. Yeah. And that is the final question, right? Which is from the perspective of a physician, how do you think this experience is going to change how we live our lives in the future? I know that's a tough question. I, I think is that, you know, the, the, just one notion of real world evidence you know, our scientific system was built on the foundation of prospective clinical trials that can take months to years to do. And in today's world, with all the technology you have, we can look at your movement by looking at your cell phone. I can collect your data almost instantaneously. My hope and prayers is we start to use data for good. And the data will enable us to find vac I mean, to find virus outbreaks early, to monitor our behavior, to make sure we're doing the right thing, to really make the health of our society better so we can all focus on the things we enjoy, which is personal interactions, our job, our family, our friends, and that we actually enable us to use data to make health better. I'm so excited by the technology we have. I hope they can be used for social good. Dr. Agus, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're incredibly busy, but we really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it's my privilege. Talk to you soon. That was Dr. David Agus. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.